0: Welcome to the Clean Bill of Wealth podcast for Canadian doctors. I am your host, Galen Nuttall. Join me as I interview doctors and related professionals and talk about what it takes to achieve wealth in this, the Great White North. Not just wealth is measured by a bank account, but also family, faith, and health. Be sure to go to galenhelpsdocs.com, that is G-A-L-E-N, that's how my name is spelled, helpsdocs.com, to get access to my free video series where I uncover the top myths about growing your wealth as a doctor north of the wall. Now, please enjoy the show. Welcome, here I am interviewing one of the first doctors I've ever met, the Dr. <laughs> Charles Nuttall. Dr. Nuttall is a retired physician. Well, I don't know, are you retired? No, I'm
1: tell. No. still working as a consultant. Still working as a consultant, yeah. okay. I did a teleconference from here uh, the day before yesterday. So semi-retired
0: <laughs> doctor from New York City. Um, I spent a lot of time with this doctor because uh, he happens to be my dad as well, and uh, he has been featured in the New York Times because he has a side hustle, which is being a professional Santa Claus, Santa Claus uh, yeah. several months out of the year. So it's a lot of fun to see my dad uh, wearing the red outfit around November or this time of year when the beard gets a little bushy <laughs> and the reactions uh, that I see. So, uh, so this recording is for um, my podcast, which is interviewing doctors and people who support doctors and talk a little bit about money, but this guy's also had such a fascinating life, we are bound to wander into other territory. So, tell me a little bit about um, your career as a doctor, briefly, like how you got started, and how you ended up, and uh, we'll go
1: from there. Sure. Well, I guess, um, (laughs) my dad always wanted me to be a doctor, to be honest, Um, and, So I did because I could and um, I went to undergraduate school at Johns Hopkins and at the time they offered a a pre-medical major which was sort of uh, unique among universities so I could get a Bachelor of Arts and uh, get a a pretty broad education in the liberal arts but also uh, get the necessary requirements in math and uh, language and science for... uh, medical school. So I only applied to one college, unlike most people, and I only applied to one medical school. And I got into the University of Florida College of Medicine in its 10th year of operation, and um, I was really excited to be part of a new educational enterprise like that, getting in on the ground floor, and uh, it had been started by an amazing man who was the uh, original dean. And he had attracted a lot of talent to Gainesville, and um, it's uh, continued to grow as a major research university. And um,
0: one thing that I want to make sure I touch on before I forget is you became an nephrologist. Yes. And part of the reason you became an nephrologist was you were inspired by Robert Cade. The
1: name. What's the name? Robert Cade.
0: And what about him inspired you,
1: so Doctor? Much? Well, he was a sort of a mad genius, and uh, one of the. Uh, Byproducts of that was he invented Gatorade, yeah, and of course it takes its name from the University of Florida Fighting Gators, and um, he he uh, he started hanging around the football players, and uh, he uh, he realized that the practices that the coaches were using at the time were really very uh, hazardous and dangerous for the athletes because they didn't they didn't believe. Um, they should drink during a performance oh, because geez. they're afraid to give them muscle cramps so he went uh, yeah exactly so he uh, he did a very meticulous study he he met, he uh, collected their sweat measured the uh, electrolytes in the sweat he weighed them before and after a, a, a game or a, or a scrimmage uh-huh. and um, and then uh, they wouldn't let him practice on the A team, but uh, <laughs> they let him practice on the junior varsity and um, they found that the, uh, the, the cohort of athletes who took the Gatorade during the game performed much better during the second half than those who did not. Wow. So they started uh, uh, introducing it to the, the yeah. uh, first line and, uh, team. And were you
0: part of a study or something? Because I vaguely remember uh, someone saying they saw you stick your head out of a door and throw up, <laughs> throw up
1: in a parking lot or something. Uh, I was. I was about to turn into the uh, parking lot. Yeah. Um, I, as part of well, Cade was always doing a lot of interesting work, and uh, fortunately, the um, the Gatorade money gave him a lot of uh, resources to do it. Um, he felt that part of the problem with a starvation diet was the acidosis. So he wanted to see if he could counteract that by supplementing the diet with sodium bicarbonate tablets okay. to uh, neutralize the acid, um, like the keto acids that build up when you uh, don't eat carbohydrates. So um, I was on a very limited diet of virtually non-fluoric foods like dill pickles and uh, celery. And it didn't go down too well, <laughs> so you were uh, a med school student at the time yeah, I was yeah. a medical student and i i uh I was always scrounging around for different ways to make money. I used to sell my blood and uh, uh, <laughs> at one point, I actually underwent a uh, pulmonoscopy, putting a tube down my wow. uh, uh, bron- bronchial tubes and because uh, the idea was that they wanted to measure um the activity of white blood cells in the uh, mucus of the lungs of smokers versus non-smokers. Mm. And so I, I was part of the control group of non-smokers. And um, the only thing I got out of it was an IV shot of Demerol. <laughs> <That> again, maybe <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> And so to touch on the idea of... Uh, well, so, okay, so part of this interview is about uh, talking a little bit about, you know, the work I do as a financial advisor with doctors and some of the things that seem to be... Uh, Well, some of the things seem to be uh, realities of their situation or tendencies. And so, one of the things I'm always interested in is when someone goes from uh, being a medical student, whether it be physician or chiropractor or veterinarian, a lot of times they go from uh, their income goes like jumps from one level to another. Quite a bit. And one of the things I, when I do work with people that are still studying, I try to talk to them about, you know, when that leap happens, try not to expand your lifestyle to match it. The, the analogy I use is, you know, like uh, myself, when Em and I moved here and she was she was the only one working, I'd drink coffee at home and every once in a while I'd get Timmy's. And then when I started working, I started hitting Starbucks because we had <laughs> dual income. And so it's like I so it's the Timmy's to Starbucks. If you can stay kind of somewhere in the middle. So did you how, did you experience that Um you know, and or, or and do you feel like it's potentially a hazardous thing to go from this, like, you know, this, well, I shouldn't say hazardous, but like that increase, uh, you know, what's, what's that like? Um,
1: yeah, well, it's very tempting to make a lot of stupid financial uh, decisions and uh, buy a lot of stuff you don't need. But um, as I went into practice and my income did jump from what it had been when I was in the Navy, um... I went to my accountant, and he gave me uh, an hour to lecture on exactly that, mm. about how to, uh, um, to to sort of take it easy, uh, don't buy the first bright thing that comes along, <laughs> and uh, spend your um, money wisely and save. Yeah. And so from the very beginning, um, I was uh, uh, I. I incorporated my practice. And so I had what was called a a money purchase kiosk plan, which was a a retirement plan. Mm -hmm. So that's how I started saving. And then when I uh, left practice after nine years and uh, started uh, working in the pharmaceutical industry, then I took advantage of the uh, 401ks that were offered to me. And and I was also fortunate enough to work for companies that gave me stock options, performed very well.
0: So there's one thing that I hear a lot of, which is that, um, and I hear doctors themselves say this about themselves or other doctors, that they do sometimes, they they make stupid decisions with their money or they spend too much. And another thing is that you know, they're targeted, either, what I've heard people say is they either fall for kind of crazy schemes, I don't know if it's because they fall for it or if they're targeted more than the average person, Um, but I remember you telling me something about uh, some sort of dry well thing that was going on in the <laughs> 80s that all the doctors were being approached well, with?
1: Well, um, everybody was, uh, uh, or a lot of people, were focused uh, not so much on increasing their earnings but on decreasing their taxes. So mm. they would fall for these really wild uh, tax shelters. Mm. But you're right, I mean, even from the time when I was an intern and I was making like uh, $6,000 a year, uh, guys would come around with uh, investment opportunities, quotes. And one of the ones I remember is uh, investing in Scotch whiskey Mm. because allegedly Scotch whiskey in a bonded warehouse uh, aging appreciated in value by 25% a year. Okay. And I don't know whether that was true or not because I didn't (laughs) didn't have money to invest in it anyway. But, um, yeah, so the... um, well, there's a joke about one of the things was um, drilling for oil. If you get uh, that's a, a good, that uh, used to be a good uh, or a, a, a tempting, lucrative uh, tax uh, shelter. To you could invest in oil exploration and shelter your income from current taxes. Um, of course, it very rarely paid off. And um, the um, the thing is that. Uh, um, the joke was that uh, at the bottom of every dry well, there were two dentists and a doctor. <laughs> that had been kind of gone <laughs> into this. The, poured and, <laughs> their money down the rat hole. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and then there's another story. I didn't know this. Uh, you told me that at one point growing up, someone asked me, what does your dad do? And I said something like, he builds houses or is in yeah. construction or something like yeah. that. And like, what was, what was
1: it? Well, did, were, did, did someone ask me in front of you or did you... Like, do you remember? <laughs> well, uh, at the time, I bought an old house and renovated it to my office, uh-huh. and so I took you with me, and you saw me ripping out walls. And that, was, <laughs> that was what I did at work. Yeah. <laughs> so, but another one of my friends, um, his, who was a doctor, um, his wife invested in um, in produce shipments, mm-hmm. and. Uh, she wound up with an 18-wheeler full of rotting artichokes. <laughs> and there's not much profit in that.
0: <laughs> and so let's, um, if I think of anything more on that line, I'll come to it. But uh, you've also pr- uh, practiced in very interesting places like Panama. Right. Uh, and an even more remote uh, nation in the mountains, in the Himalayan mountains, mm-hmm. Bhutan. And so, uh what were some memorable experiences from uh you know Panama or Bhutan
1: or both yeah or but yeah uh i I was always sort of had a a spirit of adventure and uh even in medical school i um I was able to do an externship a public health externship in Greece yeah. on the island of crete and um I met a couple of lately it was a The Experiment International Living sponsored it and each American medical student was paired up with two Greek students and we would spend um, a month uh, in different places in Greece. I was assigned to Crete with my two Greek students and then the following year the uh, Greek students would come to America and so I was able to hook up with my Greek students when they were in Atlanta because by then I was doing my internship in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was relatively convenient to get down there. So, um, but then after I finished my internship, um, I went to Panama and I did a year of uh, tropical medicine and uh, uh, internal medicine residency. And it was a very interesting hospital because it was uh, unique. It was the only uh, US government owned non-public health service, non-military hospital. And it had uh, uh, a, an AMA-recognized training program for medical residents. And so I was able to combine my second year of medical residency with um, uh, a study of uh, tropical medicine. But not only tropical medicine, but the thing was in Panama, the hospital was in the canal zone, and uh, when a ship approached the canal, they would have a sick call. And all of the seamen that were on board, if they were not feeling well, would check in uh, for the, um, med, uh, the, the sick call. Hmm. And um, they would be taken off the ship and taken to the hospital and examined hmm. because it would take the ship maybe 12 hours to sure. pass through the canals. Right. So during that time, they could be diagnosed and treated <laughs> and put back on the ship if they, uh-huh. were, if they were fit for duty. Hmm. And so we got to see a lot of exotic people. Uh, uh, it, it <laughs> places, is that People right?
0: building, bringing things from all over the <laughs> and, world. To and the Chagas disease, and, yeah,
1: uh, yeah. and and then in Panama there was still leprosy and mm-hmm. a lot of interesting uh, <laughs> things that you don't really see much of anymore. Well,
0: yeah, well, and, uh, no doubt because Panama was really um, just a hub for activity in that yeah, region. Yeah, it Everyone was kind of quite
1: that. literally the cross- crossroads of the world, and all yeah, the yeah. shipping went through there, and, uh, and a lot of tourists as well. And also, it was uh, like a major uh first world medical institution that was closest to south america right so a lot of uh, of wealthy people and uh, government people from south america would come to uh, gorgas hospital for uh, diagnosis and treatment well
0: it's funny that you mentioned chagas because when i moved to venezuela i remember um, people telling me about things and i kept thinking things were old wives tales Mm. and when i taught these kids said They call it the bug down there that gives Chagas. They called it the cheapo bug. And I don't know what it's called in English. But uh, they said you can't. (laughs) So the kids were like, you have to be careful with these bugs. I said, why? I said, well, because while you're asleep, they'll poop in your eye, and then later you'll die. <laughs> and I said, I don't think that's true. <laughs> but then I looked it up, and it's like, yeah, pretty much. Like, this thing poops hmm. in your eye or whatever. And then well, years later, your heart starts falling apart. And uh, I was like, if you don't catch it, if you don't right. know your habit, having you don't catch it in time. So I was like, well, like holy right. cow. So we would actually have, um, ch- uh, it was called Maud de Chagas from these cheapo bugs. We'd have scares, because it wasn't, that bug wasn't usually in Caracas, but Whatever temperature changes or whatever would cause it to come, uh-huh. and there'd be a big scare. And at one time, we did find one on campus, which freaked everyone out. But I mean, yeah, yeah, the thing has to like you know, yeah, it has to do it. It's not just touching it that gives it to you. But I do remember thinking this is some crazy thing. Yeah, that doesn't really exist.
1: it was uh, largely a problem with the indigenous people because no. the bug would live in the mud uh, walls of yeah. their uh, houses. Yeah, I heard they lived in thatch roofs too. but I don't Yeah, know. yeah,
0: okay. Um, so, what about Bhutan? Because um, we are in Bhutan for yeah. almost a year there.
1: Yeah. Well, there again, Bhutan was a very exotic country. <laughs> when I was uh, packing to go to Bhutan and going through all my stuff, I found out that uh, I had um, uh, two copies of um, the book by Hilton about uh, Shangri-La. Okay. And um, Lost Horizon, I think it was and it was basically describing a nation very much like Bhutan. It was this um, isolated, uh, obscure, difficult to get to uh, medieval kingdom in the high Himalayas. It was pretty much isolated from the outside world and where people lived to astonishingly old ages and didn't uh, (laughs) suffer from diseases. That part wasn't true. So. <laughs> Not
0: like Bhutan. <laughs> so
1: that, that's why uh, I was sort of recruited to be a medical specialist at the government hospital there. And in B- Bhutan was interesting because uh, they had uh, two systems of healthcare, both of which were funded by the government. And they had the um, the Western style medicine, which I was practicing, but they also had the indigenous medicine, which relied heavily on uh, herbs. Hmm. And uh, Bhutan was on the southern slopes of the Himalayas where a lot of these medicinal herbs would grow. And, uh, and they were, would grow there and they would be used all over uh, South Asia in the Ayurvedic medicine of India and other countries. But, and, and we did make attempts. We had, uh, I was working with people from all over the world. There were non-governmental organizations from different countries that would send doctors to Bhutan to work and to do research. And um, there was an Italian non-governmental organization and one of the doctors there uh, was looking, uh, he actually I think started working at the indigenous hospital. And he was looking into the efficacy of these herbs. But the problem was that um, according to the native beliefs, of the Buddhists, it's not just the herbs. It's the spells and incantations mm. that you infuse the herbs with when you prepare them uh, for medicine. Mm. And so uh, that's kind of hard to objectify. Right. They're missing the, an <laughs> important
0: <a> piece <laughs> of that. And so, um, all right, so let's skip to uh, more recently. You've So, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you uh, are Santa a couple months out of the year, and you have a couple gigs you are starting, starting to line up. Starting to line up. And then you were featured in the New York Times. Right. Um, and what was that like? Uh, you were featured in New York Times, New York Post. Yeah. I feel like you were in the Times more than once. Is that not the case? Or I feel yeah. like you were in something more than once. But.
1: Oh, I was um, yeah, I was in the Daily News. I was in AM New York. And uh, I think I was in the Post uh, the two AM. years. Running. Okay, that's it. Yeah. yeah, but then the big, uh I had like a two-thirds uh, page. um photo essay in the New York Times wow. on Christmas Eve last year <laughs> and uh, actually it was on the front page of the New York Times on uh, Christmas Day in 2015 I think. Hmm. But it was just <laughs> it was just a picture of my butt. <laughs> <laughs> so you was, have any credits? <laughs> well the New York Times sent a photographer over and uh, took about a thousand photos oh, of geez. me uh, and you know... I was instructed not to look at the camera, but they were all going to be candid shots. Okay. And so, so I turned my back to the camera. <laughs> that's what they published. But no, they put a spin on it that here it was uh, Christmas Eve, and it's 75 degrees in New York. <laughs> like, what the heck is going on? Because I was uh, standing there in my red velvet suit and fur with my arm around a little Asian girl, and... We were looking across at this young girl and her dad, and her dad was wearing shorts. Yeah. And they would happen to be from Australia. Oh, okay. So here it is. It was quite a contrast. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And then, well, one of my favorite, I don't know if it was the last article, but it was in the New York Times. I think it was the one in the New York Times where the, the uh, interviewer said... Or your grandkids must love having their granddad as Santa. Yeah. (laughs) And your reply was...
1: (laughs) Oh, they don't believe in Santa. (laughs) They don't even believe in Santa.
0: Kind of a lost opportunity there. Um, Very cool. And so one thing I forgot to ask you around the financial side of things, which you may not even, I'm not sure how much insight you have into, but one of the things that I talk to people about is, um, you know, this transition of working to retirement. Um, A lot of people, I think, hinge a lot of... I don't know, happiness or uh, fruition in their lives to the idea that they can retire. Mm-hmm. Um I'd say if people don't enjoy their jobs, it's even more so. Um, but I do work with my clients a bit on, you know, celebrating their wins along the way and also thinking about, you know, uh it's kinda like that phrase, wherever you are, there you are. Like, you know, retirement is not and you know, it's not necessarily gonna be something that, uh, if you're not happy before, it no. doesn't necessarily mean you'll be happy after yeah. and waiting for this big thing. So, I don't know if like you seem to be Making the most of your semi-retirement, <laughs> but uh, if you have any insight into that concept of kind of this wait, 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 and yeah. then well, what actually happens. Uh,
1: the, the practice of medicine, and no matter what you do in medicine, um, has a lot of gratification. Mm. I mean, and it, you you really literally it sounds kind of blimp, but you really have the power to heal the sick and raise the dead. And I could do that as a nephrologist. I had patients who would come in uh, who, you know, uh, even 10 or 20 years before would have died because Mm -hmm. the technology was not available to keep them alive. And the most gratifying patients were the ones who had acute renal failure and I could keep them alive with dialysis until their kidneys recovered. Mm. and they would walk out of the hospital perfectly healthy. So that was really, as I say, very gratifying. Um, unfortunately, there were also the chronic renal failure patients who uh, um, frequently didn't fare so well. They had to come in three times a week or more for three hours of dialysis wow. at a time. And, um, and you know, I had grown up during a time when uh, the resources were not available to provide dialysis for very many people. And so. I saw a lot of people who were very worthy individuals die of renal failure because the resources were just not there to uh, Mm. maintain them, you know. Um, So that was was very difficult. And then when I started my uh, nephrology fellowship program, it was the first day that uh, in the U.S. the um, Medicare started paying for and renal disease treatment. Mm. And they would uh, pay for the dialysis and transplantation. So, it took a little while for that to get going, but once it did, I expected the patients to be grateful for the technology that kept them alive, but instead, all too often, they didn't know what the history was, mm. and uh, they all they knew was that they had to come in for this treatment three times a week, mm-hmm. and a lot of them resented it, and they would strike out at the caregivers, like me and the nurses, so mm. that was quite challenging. Right. <clears throat> so... After doing that for nine years, I was looking into doing the other thing, and I settled on clinical research because I uh, I remember very distinctly when I was a medical student that uh, our textbook of medicine um, said that medicine is a three-legged stool. It's based on patient care, teaching, and research. Hmm. And in my practice, I was of course able to do the patient care, and I also did teaching because I was on the faculty of uh, Family practice residency uh, program at the local hospital, but I really didn't have much opportunity for the research. So I decided when I when I when that opportunity presented itself at uh, Johnson and Johnson, I went there um, to <laughs> to um, work on the uh, safety of Tylenol. Right. So most of my pharmaceutical career has been involved with drug safety.
0: Right. So um, one thing I want to make sure we don't miss is you're starting to say something around the idea of the um, gratification one can get uh, in practicing medicine. You know, like what I look at it is um, the doctors I know, whether they be physicians or chiropractors or vet, veterinarians uh, or dentists, you know, it's really, they're in the business of uh, healing, usually like Mm -hmm. healing people. And um, so, and I certainly see the case where a lot of people who are attracted to um, the profession, any one of those, they're usually fairly driven people. Uh, it's not exactly easy to become any one of those things. It's right. not easy to get to all that school. And so a lot of them, when I meet them, they say, well, uh, maybe, um, you know, I'm going to work really, really hard and then someday I'm going to retire. And then I ask them, well, what are you going to do when you retire? And some of them say, well, I'm just going to sit around. <laughs> and I say, you're not like, you know, I mean, and I mean, I don't just say this flat out, but usually I ask a few questions and they realize that even if that sounds like some sort of um, idea of retirement, most people who are driven to do things are still going to be driven to do things their whole life mm-hmm. unless something you know, yeah. massive happens. And so really to have, so that's part of what I work on people is to say like what are those things that you're likely still going to want to do Even though you've already flipped that switch where, you know, that's the big thing I help people with is they get to the day where they can flip a switch and only work if they want to have, they only keep working if they want to. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people come to me and when they first come to me, they say my biggest fear is doing locums in my seventies because I have to, (laughs) not because I want to. Um, Anyway, so I think, you know, that's, um, so I feel like that gratification could be a big part of it too when you go from this role of having people come to you and potentially, like you said, it's too edged. You might have some people that aren't happy and some people that are, but you know, going from that role to suddenly not having that as a part of your life. I think it could be um, quite a change for some people.
1: Right. Oh, It certainly is. Uh, I think from my perspective, I think a, a big part of it, um, I had always looked forward to, uh, not necessarily retirement, but to doing the different thing. Hmm. And um, the question was, uh, at what point does one have enough money to do that? Hmm. To sort of... Uh, <laughs> support uh support your hobbies or um your avocation and um, um I retired several times, but I always kept going back to work because different interesting things uh, presented themselves and so I was able to do a variety of uh of uh, tasks and um work for uh, companies pretty much all over the world mm. i mean I worked for a Danish company and um Made a lot of trips to Scandinavia, and um, and the Japanese company, made trips to Japan, and all of that was a. Uh, I guess the the main thing that uh, um, energized me was the uh, uh, love of learning, lifetime mm. love of learning, and that exposed me to a lot of different experiences that I was really able to incorporate. In uh, my enjoyment of life, yeah, and uh, and the same thing with the Santa Claus. It was sort of an outgrowth I mean, <laughs> I never intended to grow up to look like Santa Claus, but since it happened, I decided to make the most <laughs> sort of it. So, like the some have, uh, uh, some men become great, some have greatness thrust upon them. I had Santa thrust upon me. <laughs>
0: well, and I mean, I, I feel like at least from the outside looking at. You know your life. I feel like along the way you did a lot of things of interest as well. Um, like I didn't put it in this description, but I will put it in future ones that um, you're part of a group of physicians that won the no- that were part of a Nobel Prize. Right? Uh, what was that all? What was that
1: like? Right. Yeah. Well, um, I was always sort of an activist, and uh, when growing up in Florida with the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, I was very concerned about the, the potential threat of a nuclear holocaust, and so. Um, there was a, a cardiologist in Russia and a cardiologist in, uh, in Boston who um, started this organization called International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War mm-hmm. and they were publicizing the effect that uh, this is sort of the ultimate public health problem if you wipe yeah. out if you wipe out the <laughs> entire human race <laughs> and so we are working towards the prevention of that and uh, Trying to influence governments and uh, and others, and then once the nuclear threat seemed to cool off a little bit, even though it keeps bubbling up, uh, we turned our attention to other challenges like the environment and Mm -hmm. things like that. But um, there again, through that organization, uh, well, the charter members who were, you know, on board early on, and. um, I must say your mother encouraged me to do this and <laughs> stick with the organization. Um, we all shared the Nobel Prize, the Peace Prize in nineteen eighty five. And um it's um it's not like we all got the trip to Stockholm <laughs> or the gold medal with a million dollars, but uh, you know, I got a plaque. <laughs> I got a certificate. It's pretty cool. So it's pretty cool. uh yeah. And uh, uh that that was kind of an easy way to win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> it's kind of
0: like the the early days of trampoline in the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I,
1: I guess it was, and there again, it was sort of, uh, it wasn't my goal. It was uh, right. sort of a benefit, a side effect of uh, my interests in promoting world peace and uh, nuclear uh, containment. Very cool.
0: So awesome. Um, cool. I've asked all I wanted to ask. Is there anything you wanted to add or? Throw out there uh, to wrap it up.
1: <laughs> well, uh, again, uh, I think, okay, uh, I was thinking that how that experience with international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war gave me a lot of other experiences besides uh, the, the plaque on the wall from the Nobel Committee. But uh, I, I did go to uh, Stockholm on my own. Okay. And I stayed at the Grand Hotel where the Nobel laureates stay. I had the same menu on the same china and crystal in the, um, the basement of the city hall there because a lot of city halls in European capitals have what, what the Germans call rat skellers mm-hmm. in the basement uh, uh, and, uh, and that's, that's where they hold the Nobel banquet. So um, I, um, I got that experience and uh, I also got to the um, meeting in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the two uh, cities that had been destroyed by a nuclear bomb. And uh, that was a very moving experience as well. Hmm. Very cool. So you
0: kind of made your own Nobel Peace Prize trip. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) do-it-yourself version.
0: Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, Thanks for joining me. Definitely a few things that I didn't know. uh, I didn't know uh, a lot of details around the Nobel Prize and... Certainly. What did they say in the Times? It was the most overqualified thing to in, <laughs> in New York. <laughs> um, and I forgot to mention that you've done some, um, you've done some uh, work as an extra in different uh, films and things in New York. Yeah. Well, one one photo shoot where you got to play to be a doctor. <laughs> it was very uh, meta. <laughs> the yeah. Doctor being semi-retired and then being a doctor in a photo shoot.
1: <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think. I always sort of had a creative impulse, and there's a limit to how creative you can be in medicine hmm. without getting in trouble. Right. <laughs> um, and, um, hmm. in fact, um, I would say medicine, they sort of characterize medical school as a trade school hmm. because it's very focused. Hmm. What's
0: well, interesting, when I did my internship in uh, Bellevue Hospital in New York, uh, there were... Um, physicians who said a monkey could do my job <laughs> and i obviously don't believe it, but they, basically <laughs> what they meant was that it was just like groundhog day like well, you know, as cases presented themselves <laughs> they kind of did the same thing every one day. Time or, like one day was very much like another one day was very much like another and i mean that hospital was a bit different the director of the program said that um because of the nature of a lot of people that ended up there they kind of patched you know a lot of people who were in um you know not the best shape yeah. economically and you know They'd kind of patch them up and send them back out, and then they'd show up the next day. Yeah. And so, the director, I um, can't remember his name, but he, anyways, he said it was felt very much like a Sisyphean task.
1: Yeah. Patching
0: know. people up, sending yeah. them out, coming back. And so, I remember meeting a doctor that, you know, and I felt like the more specialized they got, the more they felt that way, potentially, which was um, they, they felt, yeah, like it was a little bit rote. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny what you say about, you know, uh, having needing that creative outlet, um, just because I definitely can uh, relate. In the financial advice sphere, yeah. um, you know, there is a lot of regulations. You have to be very careful. I have to be very careful about the way I phrase things, the things I say, and all that. And so, uh, it's definitely been a similar uh, thing for me to find out where I can get that uh, creative uh, outlet. <laughs> when it's, you know, I mean, working with people is part of that. Can be very creative, but the actual approach, there is only so much you can
1: sort of. do. Yeah, well, and I tried to work it into my life and career at every stage along the way. Um, when I was in medical school I actually got a role in the Florida players production of uh Marat Sad. Okay. The persecution and assassination of Jean Paul Marat is performed by the inmates of the asylum at Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> which is also known as Marat Sad the sake of brevity. Right. <laughs> but I and I was thinking I was sort of you know having sort of an existential crisis. Like, do I really want to go through all this to become a doctor when mm-hmm. I could play one on TV? <laughs> but acting is its own discipline. Sure. And it uh, requires a lot. And so I was content to become the real thing. <laughs> sure. And uh, and later on, well, I, I, all the way through, I had an interest in photography. And uh, and through that, I got into <laughs> modeling. Yep. And uh, I've been... Uh, uh, the subject of a couple of instructional videos and uh, actually coffee table books of um, portrait photography. Yeah. Uh, Chris Knight is a portrait photographer in New York who wrote a book on portrait photography and he teaches at the uh, School of Visual Arts and um, he has used me to yeah. demonstrate Rembrandt's lighting techniques oh, right. and yeah, yeah, those similar are cool. things. And uh we did one of the yeah like King Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah, that one's cool. That's one of our favorites.
0: Yeah. Well the um, yeah, the thing I was gonna say also about the um, uh, the creative outlet of um, you know, it's well I was pre med for a very short ugly period, Uh, one uh, summer school semester at Johns Hopkins, and then, well, I did the internship in Bellevue because I wanted to see what it was actually like to be a doctor, Mm -hmm. Uh, and, of course, it was a hospital setting, which, you know, know, different than practice and things like that, but I actually met um, at that hospital a fair number of uh, physicians that didn't seem all that happy, Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, then I met a whole bunch when I did the um, translation for the Rotary group that came to Venezuela, and a lot of them seemed pretty happy, Mm -hmm. but when I did do the rotation at Bellevue, I found that the, um, I found the, mo- one of so I did a rotation all over the place, but one of the most fascinating jobs I felt was the ambulance drivers, hmm. uh, the EMTs. Yeah. Um, they had a real fascinating job, in my yeah. opinion, because they'd go to, you know, a rundown place one day, and then they'd be in a high-rise the next yeah. day, and they'd be in office building, and they'd, you know, mm-hmm. perk of the job, they get to, you know, drive the wrong way down a one-way street in New York City, <laughs> and all and that. that, but um, uh, what really hit me was... Um, one day, uh, they brought us all together. It was just like thirty five kids that thought they wanted to go into med school. and I think most of them probably did. Um, they said, "Has anyone ever talked to you? What you have to do to get to be a doctor? Has anyone ever mapped it out for you?" And I don't think anyone said they had. And yeah. he described in great detail what residency was like. Mm-hmm. And I saw a little bit of that. Yeah. I see the cots in the side of the oh, right. uh, room and all that stuff. And you know, he said that he uh, he did the math, and even though he made, you know. Money as a resident, he said. If you added, if you calculated it by hour, he made less than minimum wage. Oh yeah, uh, because he was working all these shifts. Mm-hmm. And I remember he said that, and I said, uh, "There's no way on earth I want to do this badly enough to put myself <laughs> through that." Yeah. But what's funny was the next year I did New York Film Academy, mm-hmm. and I would stay up all night mm-hmm. editing right, movies. Right. And so I realized that I wasn't that was willing to do passion. Well, I was willing to do that sort yeah. of a thing, staying up all night or putting myself yeah. through sort of a rigorous thing. If it was something I I was interested enough uh-huh. or cared enough about, so well I think it's was important to
1: follow your passion. I think, um, I, think uh, I always tried to tell you and your sister when you were growing up that uh, uh, follow your bliss, do what you love, and you'll do it well enough that people will pay you to do it. <laughs> and so she became a chef which is her passion. Yep. <laughs> and now you're pursuing your passion, which is making other people rich. A very laudable uh, goal.
0: Yeah, yep. peace of mind around finances. For sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's a, it's life is sweet. Yeah. Very good. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for being my son. <laughs> you didn't have a choice. <laughs>
0: this is your host, Galen all. Thank you for joining me at A Clean Bill of Wealth, the podcast for Canadian doctors. I hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to check out my free video series at galenhelpsdocs.com, where I debunk some of the myths around wealth generation for Canadian doctors. Take care and talk
1: to you soon.